that's preliminary exegesis. And now we want to look at the principle of observation. The principle of observation. What you're doing in observation is trying to saturate your mind with the details of a passage. What do I see in this passage? Taking notice. Perception. It's not just totally academic. It's perceiving. It needs a little bit of discerning. In other words, you're, you're looking not just at sentences, not just words, not just phrases. That's a big part of it. But you're trying to notice what is being communicated here. Perception. And more detailed. This is, this is your detailed stage. Now you get down to even punctuation. Taking notice, perceiving the details of a passage. Jesus encouraged this of the disciples, Matthew thirteen sixteen. He said, Blessed are your eyes because they see. Now, was he talking to people that didn't have the, the ability to physically see? They had the physical capability of sight, the 12 disciples that he's addressing, and the audience here that Matthew is broadly addressing. But he's saying, blessed are your eyes because they see. The implication is, he's not talking necessarily in this context of physical vision. In other words, perception. Blessed are your eyes because you can perceive things. Understand what he's saying there? And then the last part here, and your ears because they hear. They weren't deaf physically. But we don't always pick up what people say. Or sometimes we turn and twist and distort what people say in our hearing. In other words, they are clear, we distort and change it or revise it or hear what we want to hear. Anyone had that problem? Husbands and wives, you familiar with that dynamic? Well, Jesus says, blessed are your eyes because they hear, they have perception. In other words, you have perception. Blessed are your ears because you distinguish, you hear, you you understand, you have understanding. That's the idea here. That's what we're looking for. Now, some of it may seem nuts and bolts. Some of it may seem academic. A lot of it may seem just so detailed that you're kind of bored to death. But we're always looking for perception, perceiving. Okay, so the goal is to become saturated with the particulars of the passage. That's the raw material that we will utilize to interpret. And what I'm doing at this stage, we're just going to focus on observation. We're not interpreting yet. That's the next stage. We're just looking at observation. Remember the scientific method that we talked about last week. So you're becoming saturated with the particulars of a passage. And again, you're just, you're reading it over and over and over until you are familiar with everything there. Making sure that you're noting several things and we'll talk about what are you, what are you looking for? One of the assignments asks you to come up with 25 observations on Acts 1-8. By the time we're done with this, you'll wonder, why did he ask so few? <laughs> All right. Come saturated with particulars of the passage. This is your data. 
This is your raw materials for interpretation. So the better you make your observations, the better will be your interpretation. So we're separating out. We're distinguishing observation from interpretation at this stage right now. Let me give you some illustrations. Back to the science example. A scientist cannot form a hypothesis, but you cannot form a hypothesis without adequate and numerous observations. If you do, your hypothesis is not going to be very good. It's going to be in error. So this is something that we do in different areas, different fields. In terms of a detective, he's trying to construct a case, perhaps against a suspect. He cannot build that case without sufficient observations. That's why they block off a crime scene so that uh, nothing gets disturbed, so that they can observe every little detail that's there, and they'll put little stickers by every little thing that might be related to that crime, because they're building a case that they will use to try to identify, obviously, a criminal or a perpetrator of that crime. So it takes very careful observations. You can see the care that is taken in doing that. Now, if there's carelessness, they can blotch the whole thing, and the whole thing falls apart in, in court. Thirdly, this is one of the main things engineers do. They cannot create a design without, for example, an initial survey, if they're building a road or even a, a structure of some sort. That survey is designed to gather the data of the situation on the ground, and the better you understand the situation on the ground, and what's involved, before an engineer does any work, he will also have a soil analysis because he's got to design a footing. So he needs to know all of the data concerning the soils and what's underground and that sort of thing. He's collecting data, and then from that data, now he can come up with a design. Same thing we're doing in the text. Or thirdly, a doctor, you want to go to a doctor and just looks at you and says, well, let me guess. You look a little discolored. I don't know. I can't tell whether you have cancer or not, but let's say that you do and I'll just start treating you with chemo. Or would you rather that he took some pains and ran some tests, made some observations, uh, checked you out, gave you a physical, what, put you through the paces to identify why you're feeling the way you are? He cannot come up with a diagnosis of an ailment without the careful observations. Does that uh, impress upon you the need to be careful in your observations of the biblical text? Just like a scientist will have a faulty hypothesis, just like a detective can cannot make a case and in fact destroy a whole case in court if he doesn't do the observations. An engineer doesn't cannot come up with a proper design. He will have a faulty foundation. The building will collapse without the observations needed. And you don't want your doctor to be flippant in terms of coming up with a diagnosis for your situation. So also the Holy Spirit desires that we 
are careful with the biblical text. Otherwise, what's the outcome? The outcome is basically what goes on in the church today. Well, I think it means this. No, 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 I think it means this. Well, I think this. Well, what's the basis for your conclusion? I just feel that way. I mean, that's the way I feel. You want the doctor to say, well, I just feel like you have cancer. No, we want careful observations. Let me give you a series of examples of what faulty observation can result in. And this first example is a little bit of a silly one, but I like to use it anyway because it makes makes the point. Failure to observe. Failure to observe. We call this a Robin Hood doctrine. Do you remember Robin Hood? He used to steal from the rich. And what did he do? In order to give to the poor. And in some ways he was commended because he had high aspirations, high motives. Well, you can come up with a Robin Hood doctrine from the book of Ephesians. If you read the text in a certain way, then let's read the text. He who steals must steal. I didn't change anything in the text. I'm going to just show it on the screen as it is in the text. He who steals must steal. That's Robin Hood. No longer, but rather, he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. In other words, it's good for him to work so that he can accomplish that high goal, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Everything there is in Ephesians 4.28. Well, what went wrong right off the bat? That's one of the main things. There's no period here. There's no stop there. He who steals must steal. Stop. No. Okay? The point I'm making is sometimes this is the way we read the text. I'm not suggesting this. I'm just saying this is the way... Sometimes... Just unknowingly, we might misread a text just by stopping without noting the punctuation. No, this part goes over here. He who steals must steal no longer, semicolon. But rather, in other words, instead of stealing, but rather, and this was de-emphasized in my reading here, and sometimes we de-emphasize portions of the text that we don't like or for whatever reason, sometimes we de-emphasize things or overlook them. Just as I did in the reading, I overlooked this part and skipped over and kind of even brushed over this whole part, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. In other words, the alternative to stealing is hard work. That's the proper interpretation. And the motive is not a Robin Hood motive so that he will have something to share with one who has need. It's as a result of hard work, not as a result of stealing. See that? Kind of a silly example, but this is exactly what we do sometimes. Maybe not to this level, but that's what happens as we fail to be careful in our observations and in our study. Here's a real-life example. This one actually happened to me as people knocked on my door and invited me to their church and handed me some literature. And sometimes I talk to them, sometimes I don't. But we were discussing an article in one of their publications and it had to deal with the earth never being destroyed. And one of the texts that was used was Genesis 8.21, which reads as follows, and you figured out probably who I'm talking about, the Watchtower and the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is one of their doctrines that the earth is never going to be destroyed. 
And they used Genesis 8.21. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy everything living as I have done. They camp on this. I will never destroy every living thing. There it is, black and white. What did they fail to observe? Even in that same text. And I pointed it out to them in their own publication, and it was almost as if they'd never seen it. What did they overlook there? As I have done. And I said, what does that mean? And and they they were flummoxed. they, They couldn't figure it out. And I said, he's referring back to the Genesis flood. In other words, he is giving a qualification in terms of the way in which he will never destroy the earth again. And, you know, you get them off their their spiel, and a lot of times they don't know what to do, so they quickly want to get back to their (laughs) canned response. But it's just an example. This little phrase, as I have done, gives a proper interpretation and changes the whole meaning uh, different from what is presented by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Another example. But we do the same thing. And this is similar to what I just said in the Ephesians passage. You de-emphasize this. You emphasize this part. I will never again destroy every living thing. But if you de-emphasize or even omit, as I have done, that changes everything. From a false doctrine to a proper understanding of what God is saying in Genesis 8.21. Let me give you a little test of observation here. And this is to test your powers. I'm going to flash a little sentence. And I'm going to give you about 10 seconds. And I want you to count the number of F's are in this little phrase. Go. Okay. Did you count them? Three? Four? Six? Woo! Six? Wow. Anyone else? Six for sure. Okay. Most people miss the same combination throughout. Okay, there's one, two. Did you get the ofs? These are the ones that are missed. This one there and that one's usually missed. Here's four of them. Usually three is a common answer. Most of you did better. So what are the other two? One, two, three, four, five, six, and there's a seven. But that's what happens. Our our eyes play tricks on us sometimes, especially if you're tired, especially if you're not careful. You can read this, but uh, did you really read it? For some reason, we miss this. Our eyes miss it. And it's just an example of you have to be careful in observations in making your observations. Yeah, if you get the first one, then the other ones usually come. But if you miss the first one, most students, if they if they miss the first one, they miss all of the ofs, the f's and the of. Another example, and this one's just an example of punctuation is important. Here's a little phrase. Woman without her man is nothing. Understand that? Pretty clear, right? Same words. Nothing different. No words are changed. Just different punctuation. Woman 
without her, man is nothing. You like that one. (laughs) Same words, just different punctuation. But the point being, total different meaning. Meaning's different. And in this case, it just shows how punctuation can change. And if you're reading a biblical text and you change the punctuation, then you can come up with different meaning. And this, these are radically two different meanings. Well, you know, that really points to how amazing it is that the Hebrew got the interpreted. Correctly. Right, because what he's alluding to is the Hebrew text doesn't have punctuation. In fact, the Greek text doesn't either. But the Hebrew is even more drastic and it doesn't have the, the vowel pointings. It doesn't have punctuation and vowel pointings. Here's another quick little uh, exercise. I'm going to show you that photograph that I showed you there and ask you a series of questions and you might get a scrap sheet of paper and mark these. This is a test on observation. I'm going to read them somewhat quickly so don't linger in your observations. You can assume that this is the Bunt family and in fact I will identify some of the people in the photograph. And I want you to just make some observations on the photograph. Question number one. The Bunt family owns a TV set, true or false? Debbie is doing her homework while she watches TV, true or false? That is a Wall Street Journal. You might not quite get it. But Mr. Bunt is a, is a businessman, true or false? The program on TV involves an interview, true or false? Mrs. Bunt, the other female there, is hemming a dress. The family grandparents are pictured on the stereo. Again, true or false. There are four people in the room. True or false. The family subscribes to U.S. News, Time, and Reader's Digest. These three on the little table there. David is the oldest of the Bunt children. True or false. Family's only pet is a white dog. Uh, who didn't show up on the photograph? There actually the, it cuts it off, but there is actually a little white dog there. The family is watching an evening TV program. True or false? At least one person in the picture above is wearing a cap. Did you get it? Number one. True or false? Cannot determine. Okay. True? False? True? 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 Okay. Debbie is doing her homework while watch, she watches TV. True? False? Can't tell? True? Well, you didn't give us the, the can't tell as a choice. I didn't. No, you didn't say true. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you were. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> Mr. Bunt is a businessman. Okay, very good. You're you're catching on here. All right. Okay. Are any of these true? 
Are any of these false? One of them's true? One of them's true? Yeah. Right. Okay, the last one. Right. Well, that's not an interview either. Yeah. Yeah, every one of the questions, every one of the questions cannot be determined. And the, uh, the observation is more on details of the questions rather than the photograph itself. Yeah, every one of these has a little thing in the question that makes it such that you cannot determine. For example, the Bunt family owns a TV set. Well, they may be renting it, or it may be a neighbor's, or it may be... Maybe they stole them. Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe they don't own it. And you figured out Mr. Bunt is a businessman. Well, just because he's reading the Wall Street Journal doesn't mean that. Yeah. The only one, in fact, most people miss number, let's see, which one is it? There are four people in the room. Some people miss that one. In the room, well, the photographer was in the room. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you could That's be, right. Because it could be a very small room if he was standing right. in the dining room. Yes. Cannot be determined. The only one is the last one. At least one person in the picture above is wearing a cap. And that's the only one that you can mark true. Just kind of a trick thing for you to... Alright, so that's your little introduction to observations and a stress on our failure to observe and the dangers of it and how easy it is to not observe or misobserve. And again, I can't stress enough, the better the observations that you make, the better will be your conclusions that you come to in terms of interpretation. So what I'd like to do probably the rest of today is give you, in fact, overwhelm you, hopefully, with the possible way or areas in which you want to make observations, the different areas, and I'm going to group them into categories. The first major category is observation on terms. In other words, individual words, individual terms, making observations on terms. And we'll spend a little time just in this area. There are different types of terms and what you want to do right off the bat, you want to begin to prioritize. Because you can't look at every term, observe every term, but you want to use perception. There are some terms that you want to give more attention to than other terms. So a way of giving some weight or priority to some terms, you might be able to identify some that are just routine, that are obvious. And it depends on the context. Sometimes an article is very important, but most of the time an article is what we would classify as a routine term. Its meaning is somewhat obvious. But just because it's an article doesn't necessarily mean it's routine. It depends on the context. Make sense? Sometimes and and, you know, those basic words or... There's other examples of routine terms in a passage. What you want to spend your time on are what we would identify as non-routine terms. In other words, you want to give more consideration to those terms. You always want to give consideration to the subject of the sentence, for example, and the main verb. Those are non-routine terms. Even though their understanding and their meaning may be obvious, 
You may not need to do a word study on them, but they're non-routine in that they're the most important parts of a sentence. And those most important parts or those terms that are most important are called non-routine and you want to give more consideration to them. Or another way of categorizing is sometimes you have words that are important that have a literal meaning and always that's the primary meaning of words. But you need to also be able to distinguish between literal and words that are used in a non-literal way. You need to identify them, because if you're mixing them up, or if you are not recognizing the non-literalness of it, you may misinterpret the passage. Those are always a secondary meaning, but that secondary meaning may be the intent of the author. You need to be able to identify that. So this is just an easy way of trying to sort out some of the terms that you're observing. Routine, non-routine, literal, non-literal. So as you read a passage, you're focusing in on words. You also need to be conscious of the grammatical categories that these words fall into or fall under. And at this point, when we speak of grammar, in my upbringing, let me give you just a little encouragement here. As I was growing up, my mother, well-meaning, we had Catholic background, and the assumption was that the Catholic school was better than the public school. And my mom was able to, uh, uh, I don't know how she did it, I think she got a scholarship or something. But anyway, I, she put me in a Catholic school, first three grades, until the third grade when this school teacher friend of hers had kids the same age as myself and my sister. And I guess they were talking, and I was, by the end of third grade, you should be reading, and I couldn't read a lick. And obviously the school teacher's kids in the public school were reading. This is back when the public schools were pretty good. Also was the last century. Anyway, long story short, I'm, I had probably a, a bad teacher, probably wasn't school, a nun. She was more of a disciplinarian than a, than a teacher. I, I remember that very clearly. But I was not able to read. Long story short, they were going to hold me, well, my mom pulled me out of the Catholic school. This was at the end of the third grade and was going to enroll me the next year in the public school. They were not going to pass me, so I was going to be held back a whole year because I could not read, so I was way, way behind in, in reading and the English. And that friend of my mom spent the summer tutoring me and they passed me on condition. Back then they held you back. I don't think they do that anymore either, right? Anyway, I was going to have to repeat the third grade, but because of all of the emotional, all the other issues, it was better to be passed on condition. And the problem was just not having, for whatever reason, uh, a background in, in grammar and being able to, to read. So I've always felt deficient in the area of grammar and never felt like I ever caught up, never felt like I understood grammar. I was able to probably learn enough to obviously pass, and I was able to make it through the fourth grade and eventually learn how to read, but I've always felt deficient in that area. One of the reasons going to college, I found math and science easier, so I didn't have to 
worry about grammar and English and all of that, literature. So I went into engineering. So I've always felt a weakness in terms of grammar and never felt like I ever understood grammar. When I obviously became a believer, realized the importance of grammar in studying God's Word, I became interested in trying to get a better feel for that. I didn't ever learn English grammar until I took Greek. And in order to know what a participle was in Greek, I had no idea what a participle was in English. So I had to get a little grammar book, go through it, figure out, okay, oh, okay, I understand what a, what a participle is. Now I can see what, it, what a participle is in Greek. And then that was reinforced when I took Hebrew. So I learned English basically taking Greek. But it, I had to overcome that mental block and that deficiency in order to study God's Word. And studying Greek and Hebrew, uh, that helped me to over, overcome that uh, that deficiency. So if you feel weak in the grammatical area, be encouraged. The better that you begin to study and understand the language and the grammar, the better God's Word will come alive to you and the better you'll be able to understand it. So these categories... I think I understood some basic ones. I think I understood what a noun was and a pronoun, but I didn't really understand how they functioned in a sentence and couldn't explain it. So when you're observing terms, you want to identify, is this a noun? In other words, you want to identify what kind of a word is it in terms of grammatical categories because it's very important to understand these things in, under, in order to understand. Now, I could understand verbal communication because you get used to that, but in terms of written communication, I could read eventually, but I couldn't isolate these things until I uh, took Greek and Hebrew. So we're just talking about basic grammatical categories. A noun, you know, what is a noun? It, uh, it's a category that describes objects, basically. Pronouns are used in place of nouns, and they refer usually back to a particular noun of some sort. Verbs are the action words in a sentence. Participles are verbal nouns by definition. Infinitives, these are usually preceded by to be. Infinitives are also verbal ideas. So if you're having a problem with this, I would just recommend going and... What I did is I picked up a used, I remember, 6th grade or 8th grade grammar that just very simply explained all these things, and I used it throughout studying Greek and Hebrew. Adjectives, they describe nouns, adverbs, basically modify or describe verbs. Basic grammatical categories. Let me illustrate where understanding these differences and understanding how they function helps you to understand just simple things, simple phrases. Here's a sentence... He was cutting the grass. Actually, was goes with this. But what? how is the word cutting used in this sentence? He was cutting the grass. Pardon me? Part of the verb. Part of the, part of the verb. Okay? So it, it's, it's an action in this sentence. The same word in this sentence, the cutting of grass, took time. How is that same word used in a different context? 
It's used as what? Therefore, if it's a subject, therefore it's used as a noun. Exactly. So, in English, you have a word that can be used as a verb, and the same word can be used as a noun, depending on the context. And if you can identify these, then you can kind of figure out how it's used in these sentences. This is the point I'm making here. Now, we can use it in a different way. In this sentence, same word, he made a cutting comment. How is it used here? Is it used as a verb? Noun? Adjective, very good. It's used to modify comment or to describe the kind of comment. Well, the point being is this is what we need to do and we need to make these observations to be able to understand how the author is using the word in each of these contexts. And just shows that the same word can be used differently in a different context. Here's another series of sentences using just... In other words, you're trying to identify how is this preposition used with he ate supper with his wife. You got the picture? It's used in the sense of what? Companionship or accompaniment. Same preposition in the next sentence. He ate supper with a fork. Different idea, right? <laughs> Different idea. In this sentence, he didn't use his wife to get the food in his mouth. Well, maybe. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's had a stroke and he can't. All right, all right. <laughs> but no, no. You see what we're illustrating? <laughs> it's context. Right, yeah. He ate supper with a fork. Same word, same preposition. But now it's not in a, in association with or accompany with, but as a means. In other words, this is the means by which he ate. Right? Alongside of him. And he's talking to it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Different context here. Okay, here's another one, the third one. He ate supper with delight. You get the point. Same word, same word, different usage or different meaning conveyed by the same word in three different contexts. So even though you're using it as a preposition, what this is saying is prepositions, even as prepositions, can be used in different ways in different contexts. So the point being is if you understand not only the grammar, but how language works, these are the kinds of things that you're trying to look at when you're observing a biblical text. In other words, how is this preposition being used in this passage? And as you can see, prepositions can be used in different ways. And so also can nouns and other things. Another thing to observe is inflection of words. Now, this is not as important as in English as it is in Greek and Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew are highly inflected languages. English is not. But things like number, nouns have number, plural, singular. That's important in English. Not so important in English is gender, but very important in Greek and Hebrew. Sometimes an interpretation can change if it if the gender is different from another word. In other words, it helps you identify what how words are associated with one another, knowing gender. 
Also important in Greek and Hebrew is the case of nouns, not so much so in English. Verbs, tense, very important. The time, present, past, future, that's important in English as well. The person, first person, second person, third person. Voice, we don't give a lot of attention in English, but that's different particular endings and prefixes in Greek and Hebrew. Number, again, plural, singular. Inflection, mood. We'll talk about imperative mood as opposed to indicative mood. Imperative is command. Is this a command? Okay, let's take a little bit of time, look at this passage and use it as an example and use it as an exercise. Let's make some observations. And here's a passage to observe. A familiar passage, not a difficult one. But first of all, let's just kind of do what uh, we looked at in the lecture portion. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 14. First of all, now eventually we'll... We'll start by looking at the first sentence, so I won't quiz you on this, but first sentence, you are the salt of the earth, semicolon, so it doesn't end there. But if salt has become tasteless, comma, how can it be made salty again, question mark? That's one first sentence. And then the second sentence begins, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then verse 14, another sentence. But let's look at terms. We're not looking beyond that for now. We're going to observe. Can somebody give me an example of a routine term in this context? Yeah, I think the first, the articles generally, like I said, not always, but, but occasionally they're very, very important. Most of them, I think, in this context... The the goes with the salt, kind of, together. And I guess there's another one over here, the light, the world. Probably routine. Give me an example of a non-routine term. Lots of terms there. Hidden. Hidden? Yeah, I think that would uh, qualify as a non-routine. Tasteless. Okay, tasteless. Yeah, I think that would be... One that would warrant additional consideration. Trampled? Yeah, I would uh, go with that one. Would anyone suggest you? No? Routine? Somewhere in the middle? Well, let me give you a little hint. I would consider just about every subject of the sentence non-routine. Because that's the major component of a sentence. So I would put you as a non-routine word because it acts as the subject of that sentence. Well, that's, that's a point of interpretation. We're just observing, we're just observing that you is the subject of this first sentence. And by virtue of it being the subject, I would put it under the category as non-routine. When we get to structure, we're going to talk about 
the elements of a sentence, and the most important elements are the subject and the verb. So along those lines, you, and I would even put are, because that's the main verb of this first sentence, or at least this first independent clause. You are, so I put both of those as non-routine. But all the others that you identified, I would uh, I would agree with. Now, I would also include salt as a non-routine word because it seems to be the main element of the whole passage up to verse 14. In other words, 13 and, well, all of verse 13. Salt, there's there, salt, again, salty. So it seems to be a main component of that sentence. See that? And therefore non-routine? Non-routine, yeah. Yeah, you want to look at words that are very, very important in a context, and probably the most important word is the idea of salt, because everything revolves around that, even though it's not the subject of the sentence. Oftentimes the subject of the sentence is the most important word, but in this case, the salt idea. So I would classify it as non-routine. Okay, any non-literal words or terms? Salt. Salt again. Yeah. Is he talking about literal salt, or is this kind of a metaphor in this case? Is that metaphorical? Is he looking at people that look like crystals or have crystalline characteristics? Or is he using this metaphorically? Uh, or is he talking to a salt shaker? Probably used in a metaphorical sense, and it's probably a metaphor. You are the salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. And then he follows it up with another usage. If the salt, referring probably back to this salt, and this salty, probably back over here. So you have a metaphorical use there. Yes, yeah, in the next passage, you are the light. That's probably another metaphorical usage in verse 14. And I just gave you a portion of that. Well, we've identified the subject of this sentence that ends with a question mark. Eventually, we will also look at different parts of sentences. This would be the first independent clause. And then, but if the salt has become tasteless, that would be a subordinate clause. How can it be made salty again? That would be a second independent clause. So you have two independent clauses. The clue there is this semicolon. So you have two independent clauses there. What's the subject of the second independent clause? This is something that you want to do every time you're looking and trying to understand a sentence. You want to identify the subject and verb. Now, I'm jumping ahead now, but we're still talking. I'm, I'm bringing it out because these are terms. Subject, how can it be made salty again? Yeah. It. Very good. Sub, uh, verb? Be made. Phrasing it. Not as a sentence. It can be made salty again. It, subject, be made, verb. Does that make it stand out a little better? Okay. So this is what you want to do. You want to start reading and begin observing terms. 
And in, in actual practice, you'll, you'll kind of go back and forth. You'll, you'll look at structure. You'll look at other things. And in fact, I brought in some of these other elements like independent clauses and those sort of things. But this is what you do when you're focusing in and isolating individual words. So the first thing is to kind of separate out what are some of the most important words here. Well, I want to know the subject. I want to know the verb. I want to know the words that kind of stand out. Salt, salt, salty. I want to know some other words that may need to be considered in more detail. What's this idea of tasteless? What is this trampling under, as some of you have mentioned? So these are kind of the main words that you want to consider there. Observing terms. Get it? You see how you might be able to come up with 25 observations here? Just on terms alone? Okay, anything else stick out there relating to terms? I think those are the main things there. You know, we could do the same thing in verse 14. Subject, you, verb, are light, and then if you read on, you're going to find out that the idea of light is important. So we have a couple of passages that are similar in terms of structure. They're both illustrations. They're both using some metaphorical language, etc. Okay? Does that give you an idea what we're looking at? So, basically, there's lots of terms there that you can make observations, and Different kinds of observations. And these are just observations. We're not interpreting. To distinguish the you, who does the you refer to? That takes interpretation. And the answer to that might be in the context. In other words, you might have strong evidence in the context that leads you to conclude who the you refers to. The meaning or the idea behind salt, that's interpretation. You're just looking at the nuts and bolts here, just making observations, observing that it's metaphorical. You're not going to the extent of what is the meaning of that metaphor. That's interpretation. So that's observing terms. Okay, last hour, we were observing terms, and I'm just giving you kind of areas to consider when you look at terms. It's not just the bare meaning of the term. It's also how different terms can be used in different contexts and how they can vary. Same term can be a verb, can be a noun. Same preposition can be used in a variety of ways, and that's that's just the way language works. And that's what we attempt to do when we are studying Scripture, is to figure out how is the author using this particular word in this particular context. At this stage, we're just observing. We're not trying to interpret yet. Simply observation. Secondly, a very important part of your observation, you'll spend lots of time in this area. Structure. In language, what is structure? It includes a variety of things. In language, primarily. In fact, start off with what is the... What is the simple idea of structure? Simplest idea. When it comes to language. That is a kind of a a structure. But what is structure? You've identified a structural element. But what is structure? Grammar or more specific words. Uh, You're close. Grammar would be a good way. Yeah. But 
If you have individual terms over here that we're looking at, structure in its simplest elements is the relationships within language. So at its simplest, it'd be the relationship of terms, which would, the idea of a sentence tells you that all of the terms from the capital letter to the period have a relationship within that structural element. Got it? So structure in language relates to relationships of the parts of language, how the parts relate. So this is a very broad area. In fact, you'll see that it's very, very broad. So what are there's two basic types or areas of structure. And Josh identified the first area, grammatical, grammatical structure. Grammatical structure is the relationship of primarily all of the parts within a sentence. And that was Patricia's description there. So grammatical structure deals with the relationship of all of the parts within a sentence. We call that syntactical relationships. Grammatical or syntactical relationships. Syntax. Not sin tax. <laughs> syntax. What's the second kind? If we're talking about grammatical within a sentence, what kind of relationships might you have other than that? Outside of a sentence, exactly. We call that literary structure. Let's first look at grammatical. We've touched on it already. When we're talking about grammatical structure, the first thing we identify is the subject. And we want to have a subject and see how that is related to the verb. Now, automatically, a subject of a sentence is the one that is doing the action of the verb, but you, you want to be able to identify that relationship, subject-verb relationship. That's grammatical. And that's basic, and that's the first thing. That's the starting point. That's the most important grammatical relationship in every sentence. You want to be able to do that identification in every case. Because everything else in the sentence is telling you something about the subject and the verb, and or the subject and the verb together. So if you can identify the subject and the verb, and you see that relationship, everything else in that sentence is just adding and giving you more data in relationship to that primary relationship. Got it? And we also have a verb in relationship sometimes to a predicate. Not always, but most times we have a verb-predicate relationship. So you have to identify the verb and then identify the predicate and how it is acting or how it's related to the verb. Your most common predicate is what? Direct object. Very good. But that's not the only predicate. It, it is the receiver of the action of the verb, the direct object. Then you have lesser important, you have modifiers, and you have something modif modifying something 
in relationship to that that it's, that it's modifying. A modifier and that that it's modifying. These are like adjectives. These are like adverbs. But they can be entire clauses. Subordinate clauses, by definition, modify independent clauses. So they're not just terms, but we're looking at terms, and now we've extended to beyond terms. Prepositional phrases, participles, all of these modify something else. Pronouns stand for nouns, so you have this relationship. You have a pronoun in a sentence, now you need to find out what does it uh, modify, or what is it related to, and it'll be related to another noun. Observations. We're not interpreting yet. Clauses. There's basically two kinds of clauses, dependent and independent. And as the names indicate, an independent clause can stand alone. You can put a period after it and it'll it'll function as a complete sentence. If it is in a sentence with other clauses, then it's then uh, the other clauses either are coordinate to it or modify the independent clause. So you can have a series of dependent clauses that modify or are related to an independent clause. That's the first thing you want to look for, the independent clause. The example that we used, we saw a sentence with two independent clauses joined together with a semicolon, and in the middle we had a dependent clause. It was a conditional clause because it had an if. Do you see that? So you want to be able to identify, and, and these are simple observations. This, this is just the way sentences are structured. You can make those as observations. And by the way, you can make observations in terms of things that you're not sure of without uh, the difference between some of those and interpretation. You can say something to the effect... This word appears to do such and such, or appears to be such and such. That's an observation. And it's almost, if you phrase it otherwise, in some cases it might be an interpretation. In other words, it may be a conclusion. But if you want it to simply stand as an observation, that's how you might describe it. So you have independent, dependent clauses. Those are your major parts of sentences. So we're not talking about a long, exhaustive list here. God has built language into man such that it has a lot of versatility, a lot of complexity, yet the essence of it is pretty simple. So that's grammatical, or what we might describe as syntactical relationships.